Well, Penny and I have just come back from three weeks of holiday. It's the first time ever I can remember in my working life that I've actually had three Sundays in a row off. And it was absolutely, absolutely fantastic. But when we were reflecting on this, when we got back uh, after last um, Saturday, um, we were just both really, really pleased to be back and couldn't imagine being on holiday for the rest of the year. Some people have the opportunity just to be away, to take six months off or take a year off or a couple of years off. But for Penny and I at this time, we just really feel that we are living at a time of increased momentum. It's a new era in the spirit, in our lives and in our church. And it's exciting to be part of what God is doing. So we don't want to waste our time on holiday for the rest of the year. We want to be doing what God has planned and created and purposed for us to do. And secondly, as, as wonderful as the scenery was, and it was just absolutely incredible, as majestic as the towering hills were, the glacier-filled mountains, the, the springs that were just clear, clear, clear as, as amazing as the snowy-fed rivers were, the God of the universe, the creator of our world, is even more amazing. And as much as we enjoyed uh, God's creation, God is more enjoyable. He is just absolutely fantastic. A hallmark of our generation is actually described in Romans chapter 1, where it says that people today worship the creator the created rather than the creator. So we worship things rather than the God of the universe who made those things. So this morning, I thought I'd talk about building a lifestyle of worship. And a great place to start with this is the passage that actually we read last time I preached uh, from John chapter 4, the woman at the well. Because Jesus had some pretty profound things to say about worship in this particular passage. So it says, John 4, 19, verse 19. If you've got your Bibles, I'm reading from the New International Version. The one at the well says, Sir, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on the mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship where you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. So Jesus declares that there's going to be a change in the way that God was worshipped. Up till that time, God was worshipped through sacrifice, through prayer, through song, focused mainly in the temple in Jerusalem because that's where there was a manifestation of the presence of God. But now, Jesus says to the Samaritan woman, true worshippers 
will worship God in the spirit and in truth. And so it wasn't going to be a matter of worshiping in one place or another. It was being a matter of worshiping from the spirit. And, you know, we are God's temple. Uh, We are the place his Holy Spirit dwells. So when we look at this passage, when Jesus said, hey, true worshipers are going to worship in the spirit and in truth, the first question I have is, well, what's worship? Is it a couple of slow songs that we sing on a Sunday? What exactly does the Bible tell us that worship is? So what's worship? Dr. Tim Keller, who is one of the leading leading Presbyterian theologians, a pastor of Redeemer Church in New York, says this. He says, Worship is the act of ascribing ultimate value to something in a way that energizes and engages your whole being. Let me say that again. Worship is the act of ascribing ultimate value to something in a way that energizes and engages your whole being. You see... We have within us an invisible yet indisputable call to draw near to God and worship Him. That's what we have been created for. Put simply, worship is our expression of the fact that God's number one. And He deserves to be in that place in our lives. When Presbyterian and Anglican uh, theologians got together in 1646, they decided that they wanted to get a series of statements so that every new Christian in the Presbyterian Church and the Anglican Church in um, the UK would know what they should be believing. And so these theologians searched through everything, got the whole lot together, and they wrote what we now call the Westminster Catechism. And any of you who have been brought up in the Anglican and Presbyterian churches will know that the number one statement in the Westminster Catechism is the chief end of man is to glorify or worship God and enjoy him forever. The number one thing these theologians said that all new Christians must know is that we were created to worship God and to enjoy him forever. St. Augustine of Hippo at the end of the 4th century, he says, Thou hast made us for thyself, and our soul finds no rest until they find it in thee. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11 says, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. We were created as worshipers to worship God. And to give him pleasure because because we were created to worship, we will all worship or serve or idolize someone or something. It's, It's in our nature. It's in our DNA. And so if it's not God that we are worshiping, it will be someone or something else that will capture our heart. And the deception happens when the things that we place ultimate value to, the things that we value the most in our lives, when they're good things, such as our career or our kids or our finances, 
or self-worth or life goals or relationships, as we make these good and necessary things the number one thing in our life, and none of those are evil, but as we make them the number one thing in our life, we miss God's plans, we miss God's purposes for our lives, and ultimately we miss the excitement and the fulfillment of doing life completely surrendered to God. Singing a song in church may be an expression of worship, but the Bible tells us that worship is far bigger than a few songs. Our greatest expression of worship to God is actually our lifestyle. The way we live, the way we express the truth of God's word, that God is worthy of all our adoration, of all our attention, and is the item of greatest value in our lives, the hub from which everything else revolves. Worship to God is expressed by what we do and what we think and what we say. In fact, in Romans uh, chapter 12, it says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is his true worship. I love what it says in the message translation of this particular verse. I think it captures the heart of what the, um, the writer to Romans is trying to say. It says here in the message, So here's what I want you to do. God helping you take your everyday, ordinary life. You're sleeping, you're eating, you're going to work and walking around life and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for Him. Isn't that an awesome translation? That's just so, so good. That just excites me. Of course, in Colossians chapter 3, it says, Whatever you do, do with all your heart as working for the Lord. So worship, for me, as I understand it, as I understand the, the word of God, what it teaches us, worship is our whole life response to the fact that God is number one. And when we assign ultimate value to God, it'll actually change us on every level. And it will change the way we live because we'll be living for God. So why should we worship God? Well, we should worship God because, as we've already seen, that's what we have been created to do. It's in our DNA. It's in our nature. It just comes naturally. But also, we worship God because of who he is and what he's done for us. So in Psalm 95, verse 3, it says, For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands form the dry land. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. See, not only is he, the great king above all gods. Not only is he the creator of the universe, the one who just spoke the word and the universe was created, not is he just all those humongous things, but he's also our father. He's our shepherd and he's entered into a relationship with us and he cares for us. How mind-boggling is that? 
How amazing is that? As the psalmist takes an inventory of the excellence and the awesomeness of God, as he enumerates his works and his person and reflects on them, it causes his whole being to respond in worship. And when we meditate on how awesome, how wonderful, how amazing, how loving God is, it gives us confidence to be able to carry, to be able to face any situation with Him, knowing that His plans for us are for good. And He can work all things out for good. And that gives us inner strength and inner power through His Holy Spirit to work through the issues of our life. Worship is a bit like this. When my mother died, my brother and sister and I had to go through all of mum's effects. And that brought back lots of memories as we poured through the old photographs, as we went through the drawers, we found stuff of my dad's. We just found a whole pile of stuff that was just absolutely, absolutely brilliant. But imagine if amongst all the junk that we were going through, we came across in one drawer a pocket watch. And this was a dusty old watch that was given to my mum by her father, who was given to it by his brother, my great-uncle Tudor Collins, who was given, to this, given this watch by an American that he took out deep-sea fishing. He took out lots and lots of millionaires and famous people and uh, on the Lady Doreen out from um, Tudor out from uh, Bay of Islands, and so he was quite a celebrity. And imagine if one of these Americans had given him a watch which was passed on down through to my mum. So, so my brother Alan and I, we decide we'll take this watch to the jeweller and we'll just... We'll just get it cleaned up and just see what it's like underneath all the dust and the grime and everything. So imagine if we take this watch to a jeweller and he takes a look at it and he brushes off the cobwebs and all the other bits and pieces and then he, uh, his eyes start to grow bigger and he pops the back off the watch and looks at the internal markings and the craftsmanship within and then, then he disappears into the back and hops on the internet to search and just to confirm what he suspects. And then, with blood pressure rising and his heart beating, he realises that this watch that he's got in his hands is a genuine Graves original. It's a lost, amazing work. He comes back to tell me what he's found. And he says, hey, back in 1933, Henry Graves, who was a millionaire in the United States, he had a passion for watch collecting, so he decided to make the ultimate masterpiece. And it took him three years to engineer, and the original Graves watch, which, is held, or which was held in the Museum of Time for years until it was recently auctioned, was auctioned off for a record price of 11 million US dollars. Now, up till this time, the jeweller says, it was thought there was only one watch ever built. But now we know there is two. And this one could prove to be even more valuable than the first. Imagine how that jeweler is feeling. Imagine how I'm feeling. His life changes. He realises that the value of this thing that he has in his hands. He realises that this watch in his hand is more valuable than all the time pieces he's got in his shop put together. He realises that his name is going to be in every magazine because he's discovered this valuable artefact that once was lost and now is found. And because he's discovered it, 
His life is changed. My life would have changed. I'm astounded. Why? Because, first of all, I realize that mum and I have not been living in accordance with the value of what mum had in her drawer for all these years. She's been living with millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars in a watch sitting in her top drawer. And here's where we've been skimping and saving and trying to get by and, and do. Uh, I realize the value ascribed to that watch, and my mind my, conceives it, my emotions are heightened, my will and life are changed unbelievably. That is what worship is like. It starts with an understanding in the mind of the value of who God is and what he's done for us and what he's going to do and it affects our emotions and it ultimately affects our entire will and our life is completely transformed by the life-changing quality of the value properly ascribed to the God of the universe who, despite the wickedness of our heart, has decided to have a relationship with us through Jesus Christ. The word worship actually comes from the old English word worthship. Worthship. So worship is to see what God is worth and give him what he is worth. Because as we grasp God's worth, we begin to live in accordance with that worth. The more worth we ascribe to God, the less worthy we seem to see ourselves in comparison to God. You see this in Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 6, it records how Isaiah has a vision of God. It says he was high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. And there was smoke and there was fire and there was cherubims and seraphims. And they were falling. They were, some were flying around. Some were falling down on their faces. And they were singing, worthy, worthy, worthy. And he's so overwhelmed by the glory and the majesty of God that he cries out, Woe is me, I'm ruined. And he sees his own uncleanliness compared to God's purity and glory. So when Isaiah is cleansed, there is nothing that he wouldn't do for God. And when God calls for someone to go to the people, Isaiah says, Here am I, send me. All as a response to actually seeing who, what God is actually like. We worship God because of who he is. Because he is worthy to be worshipped. But also we worship him because of what he does for us. And we often have such a childish lack of appreciation of God and what he does. I think it's best illustrated by the fact that during the Christmas holidays, or just after Christmas, we were up at um, Cooper's Beach, and we had opportunity to go out fishing. And one day, we took out, took out little Ezra. Ezra is my four-year-old grandson. He's um, Stephen's oldest boy. And we went out fishing. So when I go out fishing with Ezra, uh, I get my rod. I set it up for him. I put the bait on. I drop it over the side, 
I put the rod in the rod holder, I wait for the fish to get on, and then uh, when I see that the fish has got on, I say, Ezra, you've got a fish. And then he hops on the, the rod and he winds it in as best as he can, and often I'm holding the rod um, because it's too heavy for him. And so that's what we did. And he caught two fish, and the interesting thing was uh, nobody else caught any fish. So we come back from that, and he, he's feeling pretty good about himself. All right, he's got all the fish. First week of our holidays, uh, four weeks ago, uh, we had the opportunity to go out fishing a couple of times, and so we had a fantastic morning fishing, uh, caught a lot of fish, got our limit, I think, on that occasion. And so we rang up um, Prue and Stephen and said, hey, why don't you bring the kids out to Marsden Cove, we'll pick them up, and we'll take them fishing for the rest of the day. So that's what they did. So we had... Um, Ezra and uh, we had um, River with us for an extra hour of fishing. So I decided I'd go to a spot that would be nice and calm, no current, um, no big deals, just nice and easy. And so I changed my rig. I put on small hooks so that Ezra could catch the little little um, fish and put the sinker on the bottom so that he wouldn't get it tangled up in the rocks. Headed over there put the rod in the holder, baited it, dropped it over, and waited. Well, Ezra ended up catching 12 fish. He was the hero. He just thought this was absolutely fantastic. And most of the time, I had to hold the rod because it was too heavy for him. He caught an undersized kingy, uh, caught two takeable snapper and lots and lots of uh, little snapper, and he thought this was absolutely fantastic. So the next day, when we're talking about all uh, the fishing and everything else, and he's pretty proud of himself, he, he comes up to me, he says, Poppy, he says, Poppy, if, if you go out fishing and you're not catching any fish, he says, just call on me and I'll come and help you. <laughs> and I thought, how brilliant is that? <laughs> My boat... My gear, my setting the hooks up, my putting them over, my holding the rod, oh, and, and he's starting to wind it in so that he can help it. And he's caught all the fish. But then I thought, hey, isn't that just like us? In the way that we respond to God, my talents, my hard work, my efforts, etc. But the Bible actually says that every good gift comes from God. Uh, that uh, we think we've got it all under control. We are the reason for success in life. Uh, but in reality, God's done everything. And he just allows us the joy of reeling in the fish once in a while. Just to encourage us. Just to encourage us. John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave. He gave us Jesus so that whoever would believe in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. We would not even have a life with peace if it wasn't for what God has already done for us. The talents that we have, that um, he encourages us to develop, they all come from God. Every good gift, in fact, it says in James 1, 17, every good and perfect gift is from 
Him above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights. But so often we miss opportunities to give thanks to Him. So often we miss opportunities to say, oh, thank you, God, for the life that you've given me. Thank you for doing life with me. Hey, we've got a problem ahead of us. But God, I know that together we can get through this. It's more like, God, if you're not catching any fish, why don't you just give us a call and uh, I'll come and help you. But God, he is so absolutely, amazingly awesome. Worship transforms our lives because God responds to our worship. When your kids come up and say, oh, I love you. Or your grandkids come and say, Poppy, I love you. It just does something in your heart. And you want to be even more generous towards them. You want to be even more blessing towards them. So how can we grow a lifestyle of worship? Well, the first verse that we had this morning says that our Heavenly Father seeks people who will worship Him in the Spirit and in truth. He supports people whose heart is His. He inhabits the praises of his people. We were created for this. It's in our DNA. We can, we can do this. And I want to do life with and for God. And I've found that a lifestyle of worship grows as we read God's word and we begin to get the big picture of who God is. And as we meditate on who God is. You know, he said to Joshua, he said, this book of the law shan't depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. In other words, we should be thinking about who God is. We should be thinking about passages that we've read in his word as the Holy Spirit just breathes on his word and causes it to come alive in our lives. That ongoing revelation fueled by the Holy Spirit, will transform your life. And I find that as I stop during the day and just give thanks to the Lord for little things, that thankfulness begins to grow in my heart and the Holy Spirit begins to build on that and give me fresh revelation. I always find that busyness is the enemy of intimacy. It'll happen in any relationship but especially in our relationship with God. Set yourself a goal of this week, every hour, stopping for one minute to thank God for something in your life and see what God will do. I guarantee that you will be changed, that you will begin to grow in praise and worship. Also, a lifestyle of worship grows as you associate with worshippers, with people who give thanks with a grateful heart. If you hang around with people who are just grumpy all the time, you get grumpy. All right, We know that. If you hang about with people who are worshippers, who are grateful, you will begin to get grateful. In fact, there's a dramatic illustration of this in 1 Samuel 19 where King Saul is trying to capture David. So he sends a group of men 
down to Ramah because he's heard that David is there. When this group of soldiers go down to Ramah to try and capture David, they come across the group of prophets. And when they get in the vicinity of this group of prophets, the power of God hits them and they all fall down and start prophesying. Saul doesn't think this is too good, so he sends another group. And the same thing happens. When the other group comes in the vicinity of the group of prophets, the spirit of prophecy hits them and they begin to fall over and they begin to prophesy. So Saul thinks, okay, I've got to do this myself. So he heads on down there. When he gets in their vicinity, the power of God comes on. He strips off all his clothes and starts prophesying. Now, I'm not suggesting that you strip off your clothes and start prophesying. But the reality is, association and positioning are absolutely, absolutely important. All right? At Church Unlimited here, there is an apostolic prophetic anointing on the leadership of our church. Led by the Spirit with the truth of the Word of God. We're in a new era. We're in a new season of accelerated expansion. We're believing, for instance, just one example, that the New Zealand Beyond Conference will be a catalyst for revival in our nation. And just on that, this time last year, there was 300 pre-registrations for conference. Today, there is nearly 1,200 pre-registrations for next year's conference. Things are just expanding. Just the church and the numbers and what's happening, things are just expanding. There is a new season of accelerated expansion. And as you, associated with the Church Unlimited family, you're going to begin to experience that apostolic prophetic oversight, also that anointing for yourself. When we became part of Church Unlimited, you might have seen, oh, we tidied up a few things here, we tidied up a few things there. Uh, But much of the same culture was still here. But things changed in the spirit. And because of association, we began to get breakthroughs. We began to see things happen that we hadn't seen before. The first three months, we saw more people saved than we saw in the previous three years. And things have continued to grow day by day as the spirit and the anointing of our church unlimited family flows through, not just to the church, but it begins to affect each and every one of us. So as we abide, as it were, under that particular spiritual covering, we begin to grow. We begin to grow in our love for God. We begin to grow in apostolic, prophetic Um, ministries. We begin to see things breaking through in our lives. We begin to see things changing. And you'll experience this not just on Sundays where you come and are part of uh, this group to worship God, but you'll begin to see him every day, hearing his voice, experiencing his empowerment, because this is our time. And positioning and association are incredibly important for fulfilling the plans and purposes of God on all our lives. Amen? Let's have the musicians just come. As you position yourself with worshippers, you'll break through in that area. As you position yourself under the covering of apostolic prophetic people who are a gift to the body of Christ, we read in Ephesians, you'll find that those anointings will begin to 
be manifest in your life. Penny and I have been Christians for 45 years now. And we're still growing. We're still learning. We're still receiving more from God. And I am more excited about what God is doing today than I was 45 years ago as to what he was doing then. God is moving by his spirit, if you haven't already picked up on it. Lives are being changed. People are being added to the church. And God is the one who is doing it by the power of his Holy Spirit. You know, for the last 30 years, as churches in New Zealand, we've been applying this and we've been applying that and we've been trying this and we've been trying that. And we haven't really broken through in our nation. Only 9% or so of our nation would be following the Lord Jesus Christ. But God is starting to move by his Holy Spirit. He's starting to breathe on areas. The seeds that have been sown over the last 30 years, we're starting to come and are starting to bear fruit. I was talking with Pastor Tark the other day. We were just saying how we've been dreaming of a day like this. We've been through the charismatic move. It's going to be different. God is doing a new thing because this is a new era. And you have the privilege of being part of it because we're created for such a time as this, for such a day as this. And what it should do is it should cause you to lift up your hands and your heart and worship and say, God, I want to know you even more. And I'm not satisfied with just living a life in isolation. God, I want you to move through me. I want, here am I, God. Send me. Move through me. Give me a word. It's a bit like one lady in our church, and she's not here this morning that I can see, invited one of her workmates to come to church. That workmate came, loved it. After a couple of months, he started talking to his neighbours. And the neighbours decided they'd come along. Three weeks later, they all get saved. You know, one conversation resulted in 11 people being added to the church. God is multiplying things by His Spirit. And you can be a part of that. But the foundation of it, the foundation of it all is worship. It's a heart and a life that's built on loving God and reflecting God in our lives. Amen. Why don't you stand with me?